With local congregation, it's quite remarkable that the New Testament says relatively little about the birth of Christ. The focus of the preaching of the apostles was the resurrection of Christ. They preached the resurrection of Christ. And Christ, by instit instituting the Lord's Supper, clearly has instructed us that we must remember his death on a regular basis. That is not to say that the birth of Christ is insignificant. And so, in terms of history, when the missionaries came to Europe to proclaim the gospel, one of the things they did, perhaps not wisely so, they tried to accommodate the pagan population. The pagans in Europe were accustomed to celebrate the return of the sun on December 25. It was called the Feast of Lights. And of course, in that pagan culture, they worshipped the sun and they worshipped the moon. And so it was a day of joy for them when they noticed on December 25 that the sun was returning. So what did the church do to accommodate the pagan population that had been so accustomed to celebrating the return of the sun on December 25th? They decided to Christianize December 25th and to celebrate the coming of the Son of Righteousness who came in the fullness of time with healing in His wings. And ever since then, it's been the tradition to commemorate the birth of Christ on December 25, even though it is very, very unlikely that He was born on that day. It's more likely that He was born in early spring, but that's besides the point. Unfortunately, as history progressed, what came to be connected with the birth of Christ was also the celebration of the Mass. And hence the combination of the name Christ and the Mass. And so we have Christmas. Christ Mass. It's very unfortunate. Very unfortunate that the name of Christ is linked to the Roman Catholic Mass. We know that Lord's Day 30 tells us plainly that the Mass is an abominable idolatry. And we realize, of course, that throughout the history of our Western world, the commemoration of the birth of Christ has become completely corrupted and has become a secular event. And of course, the evidence of that is all around us. And that's why it is all the more important that we adhere to a long-standing tradition that four weeks prior to December 25th, we begin to focus on the coming of Christ in the fullness of time to be the Savior of sinners. And it's very important, congregation, also for us as parents, that also during this season, in which we cannot totally divorce ourselves from everything that surrounds us, but also during this season, we are, not, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. 
And so let's be careful. Let's be careful what we do during this season. Let's be careful that we don't somehow end up with a hybrid of a very secular celebration and the actual commemoration of the birth of Christ. And so with God's help, I want to focus this season on the genealogy that we find in Matthew 1. Because embedded in that genealogy are remarkable gems that we need to uncover. And so it is with God's help, I want to focus during the next four Sundays on the mothers of Christ who are found in Matthew 1. And the four women are mentioned. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. And as we will see also this morning, each of those names is connected with sin and connected with shame. As a matter of fact, the entire genealogy that we find in Matthew 1 is filled with sin and it's filled with shame. And at the end of that genealogy comes the remarkable statement that out of all of that, the Lord Jesus Christ was born in the fullness of time. There's another reason why the New Testament begins this way, why Matthew begins this way. Matthew is the one who wrote his gospel especially for the Jewish people. Matthew so much wanted his people to understand that Jesus Christ was indeed the promised Messiah, promised by all of the prophets. So he begins his gospel, he begins it with a, a review of the entire Old Testament, but in a very unique way. He reviews the entire body of Old Testament truth by way of a genealogy. And that alone should tell us that the genealogies of Scripture are important. Especially this genealogy is important. Because what Matthew wants to affirm to his people is that God has kept his word. And against all human odds, and in spite of all human impossibilities, he did remember his covenant from generation to generation. Forty-two generations are actually mentioned in this genealogy. And at the end of it all, the seed, with a capital S, the seed of Abraham was born in the fullness of time. And so with God's help, we're going to focus on Tamar. And so it says it so simply in verse 3 of Matthew, and Judas begat Pharaoh, and Zerah of Tamar, and then Pharaoh begat Esdram, and so forth. And so Tamar, the mother of Christ, the mother of Christ, first of all, she was a woman of Canaan. She was a Canaanite. Secondly, she was the mother of Pharaoh. She gave birth to Pharaoh. And after that, 
The name of Pharaoh is mentioned 12 times in Scripture. And finally, she is a symbol of God's grace. A symbol of God's grace that he manifests ultimately in the life of every sinner, not only in the life of Tamar. So Tamar, a woman of Canaan, the mother of Pharaoh, a symbol of God's grace. Congregation, I read a very unusual chapter to you from Scripture. You may wonder, why did that story have to interrupt the story of Joseph? Because when you read chapter 37, all the way to the end, we read that Joseph is now being led to Egypt and is, being, is brought to the house of Potiphar. And when you go to chapter 39, verse 1, the story continues. So literally, you could take chapter 38 out and link chapter 37 and 39 together, and there would be a smooth transition. Why? Why has the Holy Spirit seen fit to interrupt that progression by inserting what by all accounts seems to be a very bizarre and a very sordid story? It's because congregation, that chapter, that chapter is an essential link in God's plan of redemption. What happened in that chapter ultimately culminated in the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ in the fullness of time. And so the chapter begins that, and it came to pass at that time that Judah went down from his brethren and turned into a certain Adolamite whose name was Hira. At what time? Well, read chapter 37. It was at the time when the brothers had shamefully sold their youngest brother Joseph to Egypt. As you know, they first wanted to kill him. They conspired to kill him. And we know that Simeon and Levi would not have hesitated to do so. They brutally slaughtered the inhabitants of Shechem. Reuben had contrived a plan to save his brother. And Judah also did not want to slay his brother. And so he was sold to Egypt. And then, of course, they concocted a lie. They took Joseph's multicolored garment, dipped it in blood, and told their father that his son had been torn by an animal. If Joseph would have thought about it, or if, if Jacob would have thought about this, he would have said, if my son was torn asunder by an animal, why was his garment not torn asunder? But anyway, he believed it. He saw the garment dipped in blood. And Joseph was deeply, uh, Jacob was deeply discouraged. We read in verse 34 of chapter 37, And Jacob rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his loins and mourned for his son many days. What a grievous moment this was. Jacob, by all accounts, had a very dysfunctional marriage. Very strange relationships with his wives. And yet there was one bright spot in that family, and that was Joseph. 
Joseph, who so evidently feared God. That's evident from the chapter that follows in chapter 39, where he shows his integrity when he refuses to be tempted by Potiphar's wife. And so no doubt Jacob, to whom the promise of the coming Messiah had been communicated by Isaac and by Abraham, no doubt thought Joseph is the one through whom God will accomplish his purpose. And now Joseph is dead. And later, of course, when his brothers come back after they've met Joseph, and when Simeon then is held back, then he gets so discouraged that he said, all these things are against me. And so to, to Jacob it seemed as if everything was conspiring against the promises that God had made to Abraham and to Isaac and to him. And then to make matters worse, Judah, Judah, and by this time, Jacob does not yet know that Judah is the one. So what does Judah do? He moves away from his family, and he establishes his residence in the middle of the Canaanites, a very immoral, very idolatrous culture. Sodom and Gomorrah were the worst manifestation of that Canaanite culture, but that culture was known for its immorality, for its gross and perverse immorality. And now Judah removes himself, and he establishes his residence among them. He severed himself, he severed himself from the seed of Abraham. Oh, Jacob must have wondered... How can the promise of God ever be fulfilled? And yet, this Judah, this Judah was destined to become one of the most prominent individuals in Scripture. I found it very interesting that Abraham's name is only mentioned 311 times in Scripture, but Judah's name is mentioned 827 times. Almost three times as much. Only David's name exceeds that. His name is mentioned 1139 times. So Judah's name becomes a very prominent name, and yet a name that meant so much, but a man who did not live up to that name. We read about his birth in Genesis 29, verse 35, that Leah conceived again and bare a son, and she said, Now will I praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. It literally means, when you see a, a, when you see a, a Hebrew name that ends in Ah, it's always a reference to the name Jah, Jehovah. So his, literal, his name literally meant praise Jehovah. But what does this man do? He goes and finds himself a wife among the Canaanites, whose name was Shua. And he was still quite young, probably in his late teens or early 20s. So he marries a woman from that Canaanite culture. And what happens? As a result of that carnal marriage, he brings forth carnal sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. They proved to be a seed of evildoers. 
They proved to be two very ungodly, wicked young men. And so Judah was truly a man who was the most unlikely candidate to be the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet the apostle tells us in Hebrews 7 verse 14, for it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah. Judah. A man who, who withdrew himself, withdrew himself from the sphere of God's people. A man who turned his back, who entered that wretched culture, married a Canaanite woman. So what does he do when his son Ur, the oldest one, reaches his middle teens, which was normally the time when he would marry? He went looking for a wife. Now, most likely, he was using pure carnal reasoning to find a wife for his oldest son. Some commentators struggle with the idea, did Judah still in his mind recognize what his father had told him about the promise made to Abraham and to Jacob and ultimately uh, to Isaac? Was it that he realized that he had to perpetuate the seed of Abraham somehow? I, I really don't know. There's nothing in the text that even remotely suggests it. It appears that he, in total defiance of God's will, he found himself a Canaanite wife for his son who had been born by, given birth by a Canaanite woman. And so what is Judah doing? Judah is a man who is here corrupting the seed of Abraham. And so his choice of a wife for his son Ur, Tamar, it was a carnal choice. How different than his grandfather or great-grandfather Abraham. Abraham realized the dangers of living in that Canaanite culture the danger of its corrupting influence. And by no means did he want his son Isaac to marry a woman from the Canaanites. And therefore, he sent Eliezer to fetch a wife for his son. And we know that Isaac and Rebekah grieved greatly over the fact that Esau, of course, married ungodly Canaanite girls. And Judah had no such concern. He found a Canaanitish wife. And yet, congregation, and this is so significant, his choice was a carnal choice. But it was ultimately God's sovereign choice. God overruled the carnal choice of Judah to accomplish his good pleasure. Who could have imagined Judah could not have imagined, who could have imagined that this woman, Tamar, this Canaanitish girl, that this woman would become one of the mothers of Christ, that this woman would find a place in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet so it was. 
And that's why this chapter is so important. That's why Genesis 38, congregation, is a crucial link in the history of redemption, the history of Christ coming into the flesh. And what's the first lesson to be learned from it, and a very encouraging lesson for us, is this. That God accomplishes His purpose through the most unlikely circumstances, even when all seems to fail. And we live in very troubling times. But let, let us be assured of one thing, that God's agenda is on track. And that God still until this day sovereignly overrules the sinful choices of men to accomplish his purpose as he so evidently did here also in this particular chapter. This is redemption history, congregation, what is recorded for us in Genesis 38. Now we understand why. God sovereignly saw to it that the entire seed of Jacob was removed from Canaan. And so God used a famine, and he used the fact that, his, that Joseph was appointed to be the viceroy of Egypt. His, the overarching purpose of all of that was to get Jacob and his family out of Canaan to Egypt, where they were given a place all by themselves. Because if that had not happened, if Jacob and his family had remained in Israel, then what happened here with Judah would have ultimately happened with his brothers, and the godly seed, the seed of Abraham, would have utterly been corrupted, would have utterly lost their identity. And so God is at work, you see. God is orchestrating all of this. Because why did this seed have to be preserved? Why did this seed have to be taken out of Canaan and to bring to a place where they were isolated? Because out of that seed, out of that nation, God would bring forth the Messiah in the fullness of time. So here we see again, congregation, that the only correct way to interpret Scripture, also Genesis 38, is to use the key that Christ has given us. And Christ said to the Pharisees, search the Scriptures, for they are they which testify of me. Christ himself is the key that unlocks the meaning and purpose of every single history in the Old Testament. All of it, you see, all of Old Testament history is ultimately pregnant with the coming Christ. And so this chapter is therefore a significant link in God's redemptive purposes. And the application we make for us today is that also our current history, all that is transpiring around the world, is the link between the first and between the second coming of Christ. Because ultimately, we are an Advent people. Advent means coming. And so we're going to be focusing on the first coming of Christ, but we should also be focusing on the second coming of Christ. The first time He came in deep humiliation, the second time He will come in glory. 
And as certainly as God orchestrated all events to bring about the coming of His Son the first time, so God is orchestrating all things in world history to set the stage for the second coming of His only begotten Son. And so a woman of Canaan, a woman of Canaan raised in that ungodly, immoral culture, a woman without any spiritual credentials, a woman who was a sinner. But we need to realize, congregation, that by nature, we are all Canaanites. And unless we recognize that, we will not see the value and the beauty of this history. We need to realize that the wickedness, the perversion, the immorality that manifested itself among the Canaanites, that's the reason why they were destroyed. That's why they had to be destroyed before Israel, before Israel entered the Promised Land. That depravity lives in every human heart. And just as God plucked out Tamar from that wretched, ungodly culture, so every child of God, as we will see, is a trophy of the same grace. When God finds us in our sin, He finds us as Canaanites with a Canaanitish heart inclined towards all manner of sin. But what this history demonstrates, and where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Secondly, we will see that she becomes the mother of Pharaoh. What were the circumstances that led to the birth of this set of twins of which we read in the two concluding verses of chapter 38? Well, Judah's family is on the verge of extinction. The two sons were slain. We read of Ur that he was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord slew him. It's remarkable that the name Lord in capital letters appears three times in this sordid chapter. And it tells us that God is involved in all of this. And what was the wickedness of Ur? We don't have to speculate. You can rest assured that with a Canaanitish mother living in a Canaanitish culture, with a Canaanitish heart, he indulged in all manner of moral perversion, which was so severe that God kills him. And why does he kill him? Because that young man could not be the progenitor of Christ. And then, as was the custom, later it became a law in Israel, the custom was that the brother-in-law was then obliged to marry the widow. So now Judah gives Onan, his second son, also to, um, to, to Tamar. And again, we read in troubling detail, the wickedness of this young man. 
who in a very perverted way refused to fulfill his role and who, who demonstrated the same moral perversion as did his other brother. And God slays him as well. Again, Jehovah slays this man. And now there's only one son left, Shelah. He's very young. And so Judah should have given him to her as well, but he did not dare to. He was fearful that Sheila would die as well. So he gives the excuse. He said, well, he's not grown yet. So why don't you go back to your own people, uh, go to your, as a widow, uh, and, and at the appointed time that was implied, I will give Sheila to you as her husband. And of course, it doesn't happen. Sheila is now a grown young man. And Tamar realizes that Judah is not keeping his promise. How much Tamar knew about the promise made to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, we are not certain. Henry Morris in his commentary in Genesis seems to imply that she may have known about this and that therefore she was so intent on having and being involved in this on bringing forth a seed unto Judah. And so what, is, what does she do? What does Tamar do? As a Canaanite, as a Gentile, having grown up in this very corrupt moral environment, she uses a very ungodly solution to secure a child for herself. And what's striking in this chapter is that the Holy Spirit in Scripture never, ride, never hides the wretched reality of sin. The Holy Spirit is a very honest biographer. That's what makes that genealogy of Matthew 1 so remarkable indeed. And as we read together, Tamar is now with child. She's expecting twins, as a matter of fact. And when Judah hears that his daughter-in-law is pregnant, he then, without blinking an eye, says, she needs to be burned. She needs to be executed for having committed this deed. She has played the harlot, and therefore she must die. And if that had been executed, she would have died in the children that she carried in her womb with her. And yet one of, those one of those boys in her womb was destined to be the father of Christ. And so God overrules. And Tamar was very smart when she demanded of Judah his signet, his bracelet, and his staff. She knew she needed to have evidence that he was the father of her children. And she presents the evidence. And then it's for the first time that we ever read of Judah that we see any inclination that this man may have had some spiritual sensitivity. Because right away, he realizes not only did it expose his sin, but he realized that he had been untruthful to her. He had deceived her. She said, she is more righteous than I am. 
And so because of those pledges, he completely exonerates her. And he, he owns his transgression, which is quite remarkable. He owns his transgression, and further than that, he never had any more contact with her, showing that his repentance was real. And then she gives birth to two sons. God vindicates her. And God graciously gives Judah two sons. He had taken away two sons who were so wicked and evil, and now he gives them two sons. What's remarkable that this is only the second and only of one of two instances in the Bible where we read about twins. That's it. The twins that Rebecca gave birth to, and these twins given birth to by Tamar. And in both cases, we see the same thing. There's a struggle. There's a struggle between Jacob and Esau. Because what was happening also in that whole instance, redemption history was at play. And likewise here, Zerah was about to come out first, withdraws his hand, and Ferris is the one who is born first. And then we read that Tamar said, How hast thou broken forth? This breach be upon thee. Therefore his name was called Ferris. It was as if she said, How in the world did this happen? How is it that you broke forth? The congregation, there is a, a beautiful spiritual application. Because when we look at that genealogy in Matthew 1, we can ask ourselves, how is it that in spite of all of the sordid things that are recorded in that chapter, think about it, as we will see. Tamar was guilty of fornication. Rahab was a harlot. Ruth was a Moabites. Bathsheba committed adultery with David. And then we have several ungodly kings that are mentioned in the genealogy. And how, how is it that in spite of all of that, how, how did the Savior break forth in the fullness of time? A congregation that itself is amazing. You know, if you know your Old Testament history, you know how much conspired against the coming of Christ. How much Satan undertook to prevent that from happening. Think of how Pharaoh did his utmost to kill the promised seed. Satan was behind all of that. Think of the time of the judges and the people so utterly corrupted themselves. And yet God, for his namesake, raised up judges time and again. We think of Athaliah, who was determined to kill every descendant of David. She failed. Think of Hezekiah, who was mortally ill and who so grieved because he had no son. How could God's promise be fulfilled? And God granted him an extension of life. And then in the end, Joseph and Mary, instead of living in Bethlehem, they live in Nazareth. 
Oh, when we look at that whole, we look at the whole history of the Old Testament. Oh, that we may say, how, how is it that this Savior broke forth? And then we can say, because God so purposed it. That's why Ferris, Ferris had eternally been designated by God to be the progenitor, the father of Christ. And he breaks forth. It's amazing that in Micah 2 verse 13, that title is actually given to the Messiah. The breaker is come up before them. The Lord on the head of them. Christ is called the breaker. The one who breaks forth in the fullness of time. When all seemed hopeless, when all seemed to conspire against the fulfillment of God's promises, he breaks forth and is born. Because God's purpose cannot and it shall not fail. That's why I said earlier, the birth of Pharaoh confirms that where sin has abounded, and sin abounded in Judah's life, sin abounded in Judah's life, and yet God overrules it, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. And so Jesus, in the fullness of time, is born as one who belongs to a long list, a long row, a long a sequence of generations, all of which were marred and were stained by sin. And so the birth of Ferris was necessary in order that Christ would be born in the fullness of time. And so the fact that Christ who is ultimately the author of Scripture, who by His Spirit has superintended the recording of Scripture, was not ashamed to be identified as the son of Pharaoh. Pharaoh, who was born out of an incestuous relationship between Judah and his daughter-in-law. But it's not just that. As I said, if you carefully work your way through that genealogy, it is so stained with sin. People today, many people today, are researching a genealogy. The congregation, why would we want to publish questionable figures in our genealogy? We want to hide that, but not so with this genealogy. So Christ is not ashamed, not ashamed to be identified with this genealogy. This genealogy is part of his humiliation. He made himself of no reputation. You know that the Pharisees, they mockingly said to Jesus in John 8, verse 31, we be not born of fornication. We have one Father, even God. They were implying that he was an illegitimate birth. 
And of course, that's what people thought. So that was obviously a prevailing idea about Jesus. That he was the illegitimate child of Mary. And so these Pharisees self-righteously said, we be not born of fornication. And yet, congregation, we have to say, when we look at this genealogy, that we have a Savior who was born of fornication. That's what stains that genealogy. But what we see also, and that's so amazing, is that we see that in this genealogy that God brings in Gentiles into the genealogy of Christ. Tamar becomes part of it. Rahab the harlot becomes part of it. Ruth the Moabites becomes part of it. Because Christ would not only be the Savior of Jews, He would be the Savior of the world. He would be the Savior of sinners anywhere in the world. He would come to seek and to save sinners who are all Canaanites by nature. Because we know the sad history of the people of Israel. Even though they were God's chosen covenant people, they indulged in the same immorality that the Canaanites did. So ultimately, this is our story. Our story. That's who we all are by nature. That's why the biblical gospel, as precious as it is, is so offensive to the natural mind. Because the biblical gospel confronts us with the reality of our sinnership, of our utter depravity, of our utter wretchedness. Confronted with the reality that we have hearts by nature that are desperately wicked, so wicked that no man can know it. And Christ came to save such sinners. He came to save Canaanites. He came to save the very vilest of sinners. These vile sinners were brought into His covenantal life. He was not ashamed, not ashamed to be numbered among them. So also in this genealogy, we can say he was numbered with the transgressors. Numbered with the transgressors. And he made himself of no reputation. And he humbled himself even until death. Oh, he is indeed the Savior of the world, the Savior of Jews and Gentiles, even of Canaanites. He is the Savior of sinners, even the very chief of sinners, even the vilest of sinners. And if by the grace of God you are a believer in this Christ, you need to realize, as I said earlier, When God found you, He found you with a Canaanite heart. And He conquered you by His grace. 
And because of this Savior who comes forth out of this genealogy, because of this Savior, God has also taken you and incorporated you into his family. Because that's why he came. This is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And that's why in this genealogy we have sinners who were the chief of sinners. Because at the end of it all comes the Savior who gave himself to save even the chief of sinners. So Tamar, a woman of Canaan, the mother of Pharaoh, and ultimately the symbol of God's grace. And so without this remarkable divine intervention, Tamar would have died as a Canaanite. She would have died in her sin. There was nothing in her that even remotely sought after the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But God sovereignly brings her into that family. Isaiah 65, verse 1, I am sought of them that ask not for me. I am found of them that sought me not. And dear child of God, oh, let this humble us. Without God's intervention in your life, you would still be a Canaanite. Without God's intervention, you would still be on a pathway that leads to perdition. There's only one explanation why Tamar, Tamar, now has a place in the Lamb's book of life. And it's only because it pleased God. It was because of God's sovereignty. And by the grace of God, you're a believer. There's only one explanation. It pleased God. Nothing in you, nothing in me, why God would have bestowed such a favor even on us. And so now this woman of Canaan, she is now sovereignly included in the genealogy of Emmanuel. Only the Holy Spirit could have constructed such a genealogy. And now Tamar and Pharis are names that are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The name of Pharaoh occurs 12 times, 12 times in Scripture. And think of the book of Ruth, how prominent the name of Pharaoh became, the son who was born of this incestuous relationship. And so what did the women say to Ruth when Boaz married her? And let thy house be like the house of Pharaoh, whom Tamar bare unto Judah, of the seed which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman. O Samuel reminded the people of Israel, in 1 Samuel 12, verse 22, it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. Dear believer, it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. Not because you sought after him, he sought after you. 
The God who sought after Tamar and brought her into the genealogy of his son is the same God who has manifested his grace to you. And so Tamar, what Tamar really is, he's a picture of men and women who are saved by sovereign, distinguishing grace for Jesus' sake who is at the end of that genealogy. Oh, congregation, what do you think of such a Savior? What do you think of this Christ? What do you think of the son of Pharis? That's who he is, the son of Tamar. What an encouragement for us today. For it means that no one is too sinful to be saved by this Savior. This Savior came to save the vilest of all men. No one has sinned too long. No one has sunk too deep to be saved by that Savior. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. And here in this chapter, chapter 38... Here we have an example that we can only marvel at the grace of God against the black background of sin. That's why when the Holy Spirit works savingly, that's why he will convict you of your sinnership because unless you recognize that, you will never see the value and the beauty of this Christ. You will never value that he came to seek and to save that which is lost. But when, that's, when our sinnership becomes experientially real, when we begin to realize that we are Canaanites at heart, then the grace of God becomes amazing grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. That's it. Congregation, if you've never been amazed at God's amazing grace, you probably don't know anything about His amazing grace. But when that becomes real, and all we can do is end in worship and stammer with the Apostle Paul, thanks, thanks be unto thee, O God, for the unspeakable gift of thy Son, who was not ashamed to have these people in his genealogy. Amen. Let's pray. Our faithful God, we give thee thanks that we could be in thy house and that we could hear of thy marvelous dealings with Judah and with Tamar that out of all this came forth thy Son, the Savior of sinners. And Lord, we pray that by grace we would all recognize that we have Canaanite hearts. And what an encouragement to know that Jesus came to save such sinners and that he will save us to the uttermost. Bless this word to our hearts. May it humble us, but also may it cause us to rejoice. 
Bless the instruction that will be given to our young people and children following this service. And gather with us again in this evening hour. We ask it alone in Jesus' name. Amen.